Good morning. You ready for God to speak to us? I don't know if you are or not. You ready for God to speak? Okay. Are you sure? Because we're talking about the sin of partiality. We're continuing what we talked about last week and realize there's several critical issues. For those that are visiting with us, we're studying James. We're in chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. But last week, we saw how we're not defined by the values of this world. We're not defined by classism, which is money and position. We're not defined by the color of our skin, which is racism. We're not defined by gender, which is sexism. But rather, we're creating the image of God. That is where we draw value. That is where we get our potential. And we learned that our world judges two ways. One is by outward appearances, and two is by past and present sins. And of course, all this is born in the context of what James talks about, trials and temptation. And there he said, your desires, if you follow those, will lead you to death. But if you choose joy... He gives us a blueprint of how we choose joy. It's implanting God's word. It's putting his seed in the soil of our lives. It's looking and reflecting upon God's word, the mirror of God's word he uses. And then it's sharing God's word where it becomes a lifestyle. Now in all of this, one of the critical issues that we're faced with is what's called self-awareness. Now scriptural themes of self-deception are fairly prevalent. And there's two sides of this. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, let no one deceive himself. So there's a side where we can literally deceive ourselves. We can talk ourselves into lies. Anybody familiar with that? (laughs) If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What that means is we think we're a whole lot smarter than we really are. Now, the other side of deception, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. We can allow other voices speak into our lives, and we can believe those, so much so that we are deceived in terms of the truth. And James says, listen, know who Jesus is. Know that he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Know that he's the Savior of this world. Know who Jesus is and what he says about you. Because if Jesus is the ultimate authority on this world, he is the ultimate authority on you. And if you value other sources above his, you are inviting deception into your life. If you're willing to listen to every other voice instead of his, you will be deceived. Let me illustrate this with a conversation Jesus had with Peter and his disciples. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. You can follow with me on the screen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Important question. We all need here this morning to understand who do we say Jesus is? And I love their answer. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So rather than answering the question directly for themselves, they just are passing the rumors. Here's what's going around. But he said to them, but who do you say I am? 
And that's a question every single one of us has to face this morning. If we're going to get the choose joy right, if we're going to get the rule of showing no partiality, we have to answer that question correctly. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this. In other words, all the opinions out there didn't count. But my father who is in heaven. And then he says this, but I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what he did there was a play on words, and he changed Peter's name, literally from pebble to rock. He gave Peter a new name. And while it's critical we know who Jesus is, and the world is full of opinions, but what is the truth? It's equally critical critical that you need to know who Jesus says I am, who Jesus says you are. And again, the world will be full of opinions, outward impressions, past and present sins, just knowing a piece of who you are and people make a judgment based on that. But you have to listen to what Jesus says you are. What is the truth? This is the grace of God. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If you look at our culture today, an entire generation is trying to figure out what they're called to do, but they have no idea who they are. And many are well-connected, they're well-educated, and they're overwhelmed with options. And in their hearts, this little spark of the image of God, they're being called to do something that the world says cannot be done, and they don't know what to do with that because all the voices out there are deceiving them. And it's my personal opinion that the church in America has lost its way. By that I mean our convictions are formed from opinions rather than from the truth. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in this passage, he renames Peter. And what that means this morning is that he wants to give you and I a new name. Not the names that the world gives you. (laughs) You ever been called some things? How many people were raised with nicknames? I had a nickname. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't like it. But if you listen... Okay, if you see the truth about Jesus and if you listen to what he says about you and we know Peter, we know he said so many things that were wrong. We know he's going to make a lot of mistakes. We know he's going to deny Jesus at the crucifixion, but Jesus gives him a new name. He goes, this is what you are going to be. I see you as a rock and not a little stone. And if the church gets this right, Jesus says, not even the gates of hell will be able to stop it. Today in America, we quit when we get offended over preferences in politics. And the truth is, we worship to an audience of one this morning. We worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen? And the truth, okay, the truth is that that's who he is. But there's another important truth James talks about. 
Let's pick it up in James chapter 2, verse 5. Last week we did verses 1 through 4. We saw the no partiality rule and we talked about that. But listen to how he extends this. He first points to Jesus, the king of glory. Now he says this in verse 5. Listen, pay attention, understand, see this. My beloved brothers. He calls us loved ones. Okay? Has not God chosen? Let's just stop there for a moment. Talk about the grace of God. His grace chooses you. He chooses us. And it's not based on classism. Now, again, I said last week, this is the illustration, but it's so much more important than just the poor and the rich. He goes, he has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Let's just unpack this for a little bit. Because how the world looks at people and how the world judges people, and I think we are so caught up in, in things of the world, we don't understand how this plays out. First Corinthians chapter 1. I love this. For anybody that feels like that they're worthless, for anybody that feels like they can't give anything, for anybody that says, you know what, I'm out of the game because of my past. I love this passage. First Corinthians 1 verse 26 through 28. For consider your calling. Okay, consider God choosing you, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That means a lot of them didn't have an education. They weren't the go-to people. They didn't have the degrees. They didn't have the good grades in school. Not many were powerful. They didn't have the positions of power that people looked to, that people went to if they needed something. Not many were of noble birth. That's just classism. Born into a family that has a lot of control and power, that has a lot of money. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not. It's an interesting phrase because it simply means that the world looks at these people and say they are nothing. They are nobodies. They don't count. They don't matter. To bring to nothing things that are. Now this is really difficult for us to understand. As I said before, we're so caught up in our worldly standards and our legalism has so penetrated our minds and hearts. We read this, we shake our heads in affirmation, but in our lives we say, really? I mean, does God want to do that? I want to back up just for a moment to James chapter 1, verse 27. Remember the statement we said about religion? Religion that's pure, undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we talked about how true religion hangs out with people that the world says are unimportant. And there's no boundaries to who we sit down with. And that's why we see Jesus sitting down with tax collectors like Zacchaeus, calling people like Matthew onto his 12. We see him. When I look at the 12 disciples, I got to tell you, it's not the group of people I would have gathered. I mean, there was terrorists, the zealots. There was tax collectors. There was fishermen. There was murderers. 
They were the people the world looked upon and said, you know what? They don't count. Success in our world, we often define by wealth and position. Success in the kingdom of God is found in Jesus. It's not the accumulation of stuff. And here's what he's saying. The poor need Jesus. Amen? Now here's what he's also saying. The rich need Jesus. But here's a truth we wrestle with, and we do not like this truth. In this passage, he says, listen, the truth is the poor get it quicker than the rich. Listen to what's being said. Let's say that you have nothing. You've lost it all. And we're not going to get into going into why that exists. But the fact is you live what's called, I call, manna existence. There's a story about Israel. They were all slaves for hundreds of years. They finally cut loose. They go out into the wilderness. And remember, all they knew was being a slave. That's it. And so God fed them every single day with something called manna. The interpretation of manna in Hebrew is what is it? (laughs) They didn't know, but they ate it because they need to eat every day. And this manna had a unique chemistry to it you see if somebody tried to keep enough for the next day what happened it rotted it's no good you couldn't hoard it you couldn't gather for the second day and yet on friday because of the sabbath day of worship they weren't supposed to work if you kept two days worth on friday it stayed good saturday so this stuff was really kind of unique and ladies imagine this Imagine wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They had crazy clothes. They never wore out. Imagine wearing the same outfit for 40 years. You laugh. You would not like that. <laughs> but there are people here this morning that understand man existence. They wake up every day, and today is all they have. That's it. And for those in that condition, you know that when you wake up, the world judges you. Now, here's what Christ says. Christ says, I am the king of king and the Lord of lords, and I have chosen you. Will you accept my invitation? And you can be rich in faith. And in my kingdom, I will raise you up. I will make you wise. I will make you strong. And see, the poor get this because they have nothing but Jesus. Now, most of us don't even know what that means. The closest Bev and I got to this was in church planning. And there were some days we woke up and had no idea what we were going to feed our kids. And I will guarantee you right now, that is hard on a man's pride. (laughs) You sit and think, well, what did I do wrong? And yet we saw God move in miraculous ways every single day. And then we moved to the States, and I was hired by a church that actually gave me an income. And one day we're sitting there saying, you know, it's easier to live by faith when we had no choice, (laughs) when now we have an income and we can figure out actually where we're going to get our food, our shelter, our clothes. You know, it actually all works out in mathematics. Now you see, the rich don't think this way. When they wake up, They say things like this. I have nothing to wear. Their closets and their dressers and their storage containers are full of clothes. See, that's a deception. 
It's a lie. See, the rich go to eat and say, ah, oh, there's nothing to eat. What am I going to eat? Let's go out. And yet in their fridge and their freezers, there's enough food to last for weeks. See, wealth has captured our hearts, and we don't even know it because it's really about our preferences. It's not that we don't have clothes to wear. It's not that we don't have food to eat. We just don't like the clothes, and we don't like the food. But that's not being poor. And the truth is, in those settings, we don't need Jesus like someone who has nothing needs Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to get into this later, but let me just kind of preempt what we're going to say. James chapter 5 says this, and this is hard for us to hear. It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And we say, ouch. Now you realize every single person here this morning is rich and compared to the world's standards. You go to third world countries, you understand what poverty is. We have no concept. And we read this and it's kind of like, what's he really trying to tell us? Well, what do you think he's saying? In verse 4, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. You cheated your employees. Are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying, listen, you relied on your riches far too much. And there's going to be some day where your clothes will rot, your wealth will be destroyed. When you face me in eternity, none of this is going to matter. Everything you get excited about. And yet when I show up, you really can't even get motivated to come and worship me. In verse 5 of that passage, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so he says, the very thing you claim to be, you end up hurting. And of course, it's an illustration of what happened with Jesus. The Pharisees thought they were rich. They thought they were blessed. They prayed for the Messiah. He comes, and what did they do? They kill and they murder the righteous person, all in the name of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's a fancy word for pride, arrogant. In other words, you don't look and say, look at me. Look what I made. I'm a successful person. No. God allowed you and gave you your wealth. Nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what which is truly life. Now, hear what he's saying in both passages. It's not wealth that's strong. It's when it takes us away from Jesus. It's when it captures our mind and we think that we are superior. This past week, I sat down with someone because they wanted to talk to me about a friend. And they said this friend of theirs is, is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, he says it probably could be in the billions. His friend's in his 50s. He's empty, he's alone, he's suicidal. 
And he says, I don't know if the guy's going to make it through the day. My friend told me he's an alcoholic, even though the guy doesn't want to admit that. But when you drink a fifth of vodka for breakfast, guess what? You're probably an alcoholic, right? Possible drug addict, but doesn't know it. But he is rich beyond belief in this world, and it's poor when it comes to life. But he's disconnected from the one who knows him. And my friend is desperately trying to get him to see Jesus because nothing else will matter. No amount of argument. No amount of rational thought because he's deceived. And he needs to see the truth. Amen. So let's go back to James chapter two, verses six and seven. Here's what he says in this situation. And he's putting a pretty harsh reality to us. And when it comes to no partiality, here's what he says. But you've dishonored the poor man. When you judge someone, okay? And he's talking about how we judge people without knowing their stories, without knowing where they're at, without the grace of God, which God gave us. And we refuse to give to them. We kind of just sit with crossed arms and say, you know what? Mm -hmm. Because you've dishonored the poor when you judge them that way. Now, he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? It's a nice way of saying the wealthy people only can, they're the only ones who can afford a lawyer. (laughs) And think about how they come after you. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you were called? And again, he's talking about rich people that do not understand who God is. He says, don't cater to them. Don't give them special treatment. Now, see, in our world, we have this mentality of entitlement. How many times did you hear people say this? Well, I deserve. And think about how this plays out because it's very deceptive when we start saying, I deserve something. In the light of Jesus, in the light that he's king, king, and lord of lords, in the light of our sin, what do we deserve? (laughs) Nothing. And yet God gives us grace. We don't deserve grace. He gives us grace. But this I deserve infects every idea and action. Listen to people talk. Equal rights. I deserve. And they violate someone else's life, the very thing they want for themselves. I know you've seen that. What about justice? Someone has to pay. And they do to someone else what they would not want done to them. Well, it ought to be fair. And we measure someone who has more, not someone who has less. Tolerance. They desire for everyone to be tolerant of their behaviors. And they refuse to be tolerant of another's belief that are different. All this to say that judging people apart from partiality is tough. And if we don't think it's tough, then we deceive ourselves. Let's take this money issue, because that's what he illustrates with. And again, it's a broader illustration than just the rich and poor. Many people in America, in the church, have been duped by what's called prosperity theology. I hear people say all the time, well, if you have faith, then you're going to have plenty of money. James says that's evil. It's wrong. It smacks of deception and arrogance. I remember watching on 2020 a popular prosperity preacher in America sharing his story 
talking about how God's blessed him and, you know, his three homes, each worth a couple million dollars a piece. And the commentator asked this question. So what do you say to the third world Christians who have nothing? What do you say about them living in poverty? And here's what he said. He was, I don't know about them. All I know is it works for me. And I thought, how tragic. See, there's a big confusion about being rich in Christ and being rich in this world. So much so in America, it even affects our vision of heaven. I hear Christians all the time say, wow, we get to heaven, there are going to be streets of what? And the buildings are built out of what? Precious jewels. I mean, it's going to be so great, that bling I have on my finger, that bling I wear, I'm going to see it everywhere. I was in a class one time with a Christian from India. He goes, you know, you Americans? He goes, you think bling is going to be all over heaven? He goes, here's how we interpret it. We get to heaven, gold and precious jewels, things that we value here, going to be just like dirt. We're going to walk on them. It won't matter. It will not attract our attention because the glory of Christ is going to be so prominent. Now, who do you want to believe? (laughs) The American version or the India version? Now, principle comes out of all this is you better know and understand where everything comes from. Amen? Now, that includes your stuff. That includes you. You are chosen to be a son or a daughter of God. And will you accept that invitation? Now, let me flesh this out even more because we're always hung up on stuff. Let's talk about relationships for a moment. Talk about poor and rich relationships. I came from a home where I had two parents until my mom died at age 54. Both were Christians. I was raised in a farm. We worked hard. Some people today would call that probably uh, slavery, but we learned a lot of different things in the farm. You know, one of the things we learned is we had plenty to eat. Most of my relatives were Christians. I went to a church all my life. I should say part of the time I was made to go to church. (laughs) I was one of those kids like, dad, do I have to? My dad says, you're in this house. You eat my food. You go to my church. (laughs) No argument. My parents loved me. They disciplined me. Now, those two things, sometimes I thought they didn't love me as much when they disciplined me. Because guess what? It wasn't fair. They didn't do it to my brothers like they did it to me. (laughs) They watched over me, even when I didn't know it. I was rich in terms of relationships. Now, many of you did not have those privileges. Some of your stories... Talks about being raised in homes where alcohol and drugs were introduced at a very young age. Some of you had horrible things done to you instead of having loving parents. Some were raised in third world countries under unthinkable dictatorships and hardships. So you see this no partiality rule? For me to judge you harshly because of your past is showing partiality. And James says it's evil. And James says, just because you were rich with your parents, just because you had all those privileges, just because, you know, sit down and listen to their stories and realize what I'm calling them to be 
and calling them to do and allow the grace of God. We so often talk about how God is a miraculous God, but we do not allow him to live it out because we are so caught up in our own visions of partiality that we can't get beyond ourselves. So understand here this morning, every one of you, God is calling you and he wants to raise you up and he wants to confound the wise and confuse the rich and he wants to astound those who think they are nobles and while none of you and maybe some of you but while most of you would never be great in this world you'll be rich in Christ's work. I was reminded of a couple this morning I met and he's one of the guys I kind of put up here as a hero in terms of faith, because he married and his wife early in their marriage ended up getting a mental illness. And he was trying to raise his kids while his wife was calling the president of the United States, threatening him and the secret service were showing up. And of course they would arrest her and throw her in prison. And the mental illness was that strong that he had to make a choice for the safety of his kids. He had to divorce his wife away from this. And so he did that. He raised the kids by himself they grew up, went to college, got married. And then he came to me one day and said, you know, he goes, he goes, I, I married my wife for better, for worse. And the reason I had to divorce her, and it was a lot of legal reasons, things like this, is no longer there. And he goes, I would like to remarry her again. And you know, she still struggles with her mental illness. When she's on her meds, she's fine. When she's off her meds, You know, there is no amount of rational thought that will help mold and shake her. Now, if I would mention his name, and I'm not going to, you would not know who that is. Now, maybe some of you bought a car from him because he's a car salesman. Got to tell you, in God's kingdom, his choice confounds people. You know, Job 34 says this in verse 19. Talks about God who shows no partiality to princes or regards the rich more than the poor. For they are all the work of his hands. We have to believe that. We have to live that. In Acts 10 verse 34, when the church was confronted with, you know, Christians were coming outside the Jewish faith, Peter opened his mouth and said this. Peter, who said so many things in so many ways and was wrong so many times. Peter, who challenged Jesus that he was never going to die. Says, truly understand that God shows no partiality. See, the sin of partiality is the sin of pride. And pride and humility cannot coexist. In James 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, if you want to choose grace, you've got to choose humility. If you want to choose grace, then you've got to treat people like Christ treated you. If you want to choose grace, then you're going to choose joy in the midst of trials. You're going to resist the temptation. You're going to implant God's word into your life. You're going to live it. You're going to believe it. You're going to act on it. And when you say, I can't, God's grace comes in and says, I can. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But let me kind of sum this up this way. 
The rule that James has taught us the last two weeks is that we are to show no partiality. That's the rule. Secondly, he says we have to avoid deceiving ourselves and allowing others to deceive us, which means all the opinions out there and all the ideas and everything everybody has to say about a situation, we set aside and we follow God's truth. Three, the grace that God gives to us, we give to others. Amen? Which means, number four, we aligned our behaviors with what we claim we believe in Christ Jesus. If he is the king and king and lord of lords, if he is the glory of God and he chooses us, man, we live like sons and daughters of him. The other choice is we live like sons and daughters of this world. And I don't think we want to go there. Amen? Let me pray with you. Father God, your grace is powerful. It is alive. It's active. And we fail to comprehend how powerful it is. And yet we see it around us every single day in people's lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we cloud our own minds and our hearts with our own opinions and ideas and our own deceptions. Forgive us when we are unwilling to give to somebody else what you gave to us. Forgive us for lying to ourselves because we do it. We do it a lot, don't we? I mean, you know that. We're often unwilling to, just, to admit that. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we have gathered here to worship you, that we do so with hearts that are willing to submit and bow to you. They're willing to leave this place and listen to what you have for us and what you called us to be and called us to do. Regardless of whether we think it's fair or unjust, I pray, Lord, that we as a church be a church that not even the gates of hell can withstand the power of the cross and Christ, what he wants to do in people's lives. Because there are people in a living hell today. And they need someone to reach down with a hand and walk with them right through those gates. God, make us into that kind of church. We pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen.